0: Introduction and Prefaces to Caleb Williams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darvinia. Caleb Williams, or Things As They Are, by William Godwin. With an introduction by Ernest A. Baker, M. A. London, 1903. Dramatis Personae. Mr. Ferdinando Falkland, a high-spirited and highly-cultured gentleman, a country squire in a remote county of England. Caleb Williams, a youth, his secretary, the discoverer of his secret, and the supposed narrator of the consequent events. Mr. Collins, Falkland's steward and Caleb's friend. Thomas a servant of Falkland's, Mr. Forrester, Falkland's brother-in-law, Mr. Barnabas Tyrrell, a brutal and tyrannical squire, Miss Emily Melville, his cousin and dependent, whom he cruelly maltreats and does to death, Grimes, a brutal rustic, suborned by Tyrrell to abduct Miss Melville, Dr. Wilson, Mrs. Hammond, friends of Miss Melville, Mr. Hawkins, farmer, young Hawkins, his son, victims of Tyrell's brutality and wrongfully hanged as his murderers. Jines, a robber and thief-taker, instrument of Falkland's vengeance upon Caleb. Mr. Raymond, an Arcadian captain of robbers. Larkins, one of his band. An old hag, housekeeper to the robbers. A jailer. Miss Peggy, the jailer's daughter. Mrs. Marney, a poor gentlewoman, Caleb's friend in distress. Mr. Spurl, a friend who informs on Caleb. Mrs. Denison, a cultivated lady with whom Caleb is for a while on friendly terms. Introduction by Ernest A. Baker, M.A. The reputation of William Godwin as a social philosopher, and the merits of his famous novel Caleb Williams, have been for more than a century the subject of extreme divergencies of judgment among critics. The first systematic anarchist, as he is called by Professor Saintsbury, aroused bitter contention with his writings during his own lifetime, and his opponents have remained so prejudiced that even the staid bibliographer Alibone in his dictionary of english literature a place where one would think the most flagitious author safe from animosity speaks of godwin's private life in terms that are little less than scurrilous over against this persistent acrimony may be put the fine eulogy of mr c keegan paul his biographer to represent the favourable judgment of our own time whilst I will venture to quote one remarkable passage that voices the opinions of many among Godwin's most eminent contemporaries. In The Letters of Charles Lamb, Sir T. N. Talford says, Indifferent altogether to the politics of the age, Lamb could not help being struck with productions of its newborn energies so remarkable as the works and the character of Godwin he seemed to realize in himself what Wordsworth long afterwards described the central calm at the heart of all agitation. Through the medium of his mind the stormy convulsions of society were seen silent as in a picture. Paradoxes the most daring wore the air of deliberate wisdom as he pronounced them. He foretold the future happiness of mankind, not with the inspiration of the poet, but with the grave and passionless voice of the oracle. There was nothing better calculated at once to feed and to make steady the enthusiasm of youthful patriots, than the high speculations in which he taught them to engage, on the nature of social evils and the great destiny of his species. No one would have suspected the author of those wild theories which startled the wise and shocked the prudent, in the calm, gentlemanly person who rarely said anything above the most gentle commonplace, and took interest in little beyond the whist-table. William Godwin, 1756 to 1836, was son and grandson of dissenting ministers, and was destined for the same profession. In theology he began as a Calvinist, and for a while was tinctured with the austere doctrines of the Sandemanians, but his religious views soon took an unorthodox turn, and in 1782, falling out with his congregation at Stowmarket, he came up to London to earn his bread henceforward as a man of letters. In 1793 Godwin became one of the most famous men in England by the publication of his Political Justice, a work that his biographer would place side by side with the Speech for Unlicensed Printing the Essay on Education, and Émile, as one of the unseen levers which have moved the changes of the times. Although the book came out at what we should call a prohibitive price, it had an enormous circulation, and brought its author in something like one thousand guineas. In his first novel, Caleb Williams, which was published the next year, He illustrated in scenes from real life many of the principles enunciated in his philosophical work. Caleb Williams went through a number of editions, and was dramatized by Coleman, the younger, under the title of The Iron Chest. It has now been out of print for many years. Godwin wrote several other novels, but one alone is readable now, St. Leon, which is philosophical in idea and purpose, and contains some passages of singular eloquence and beauty. Godwin married the authoress of the Rights of Woman, Mary Wollstonecraft, in 1797, losing her the same year. Their daughter was the gifted wife of the poet Shelley. He was a social man, particularly fond of whist, and was on terms of intimacy and affection with many celebrated men and women. Tom Paine, Josiah Wedgwood, and Curran were among his closest male friends, while the story of his friendship with Mrs. Inchbald, Amelia Opie, with the lady immortalized by Shelley as Maria Gisborne, and with those literary sisters, Sophia and Harriet Lee, authors of the Canterbury Tales, has a certain sentimental interest. Afterwards he became known to Wordsworth, Coleridge, and Lamb. He married Mrs. Claremont in 1801. His later years were clouded by great embarrassments, and not till 1833 was he put out of reach of the worst privations by the gift of a small sinecure, that of Yeoman Usher of the Exchequer. He died in 1836. Among the contradictory judgments passed on Caleb Williams by Godwin's contemporaries, those of Hazlitt, Sir James Mackintosh, and Sir T. N. Talford, were perhaps the most eulogistic, whilst De Quincey and Alan Cunningham criticised the book with considerable severity. Hazlitt's opinion is quoted from The Spirit of the Age. A masterpiece, both as to invention and execution, The romantic and chivalrous principle of the love of personal fame is embodied in the finest possible manner in the character of Falkland. As in Caleb Williams, who is not the first but the second character in the piece, we see the very demon of curiosity personified. Perhaps the art with which these two characters are contrived to relieve and set off each other has never been surpassed by any work of fiction— with the exception of the immortal satire of Cervantes. Sir Leslie Stephen said of it the other day, It has lived, though in comparative obscurity, for over a century, and high authorities tell us that vitality prolonged for that period raises a presumption that a book deserves the title of classic. National Review, February 1902. To understand how the work came to be written, and its aim, it is advisable to read carefully all three of Godwin's prefaces, more particularly the last and the most candid, written in 1832. This will, I think, dispose of the objection that the story was expressly constructed to illustrate a moral—a moral that, as Sir Leslie Stephen says, eludes him. He says— I formed a conception of a book of fictitious adventure that should in some way be distinguished by a very powerful interest. Pursuing this idea, I invented first the third volume of my tale, then the second, and last of all the first. I bent myself to the conception of a series of adventures of flight and pursuit. The fugitive, in perpetual apprehension of being overwhelmed with the worst calamities, and the pursuer, by his ingenuity and resources, keeping his victim in a state of the most fearful alarm. This was the project of my third volume. He goes on to describe in more detail the dramatic and impressive situations, and the fearful events, that were to be evolved, making it pretty clear that the purpose somewhat vaguely and cautiously outlined in the earliest preface was rather of the nature of an afterthought. Falkland is not intended to be a personification of the evils caused by the social system, nor is he put forward as the inevitable product of that system. The reader's attention is chiefly absorbed by the extraordinary contest between Caleb Williams and Falkland, and in the tragic situations that it involves. Compared with these the denunciation of the social system is a matter of secondary interest. But it was natural that the author of the political justice, with his mind preoccupied by the defects of the English social system, should make those defects the evil agencies of his plot. As the essential conditions of the series of events, as the machinery by which everything is brought about, these defects are of the utmost importance to the story. It is the accused system that awards to Tyrrell and Falkland their immense preponderance in society, and enables them to use the power of the law for the most nefarious ends. Tyrrell does his cousin to death, and ruins his tenant, a man of integrity, by means of the law. This is the occasion of Falkland's original crime. His more heinous offence, the abandonment of the innocent Hawkinses to the gallows, is the consequence of what Godwin expressly denounces—punishment for murder. I conceived it to be in the highest degree absurd and iniquitous, to cut off a man qualified for the most essential and extensive utility, merely out of retrospect to an act which, whatever were its merits, could not be retrieved. Then a new element is imported into the train of causation—Caleb's insatiable curiosity— and the strife begins between these well-matched antagonists—the man of wealth and station utilizing all the advantages granted him by the state of society to crush his enemy. Godwin then was justified in declaring that his book comprehended a general view of the modes of domestic and unrecorded despotism by which man becomes the destroyer of man. Such were the words of the original preface— which was suppressed for a short time owing to the fears caused by the trial of Horn Took, Thomas Holcroft, and other revolutionists, with whom Godwin was in profound sympathy. Had he intended Caleb Williams, however, from its first conception, to be an imaginative version of the political justice, he would have had to invent a different plan and different characters. The arguments of a sociological novel lack cogency unless the characters are fairly representative of average mankind. Godwin's principal actors are both, to say the least, exceptional. They are lofty idealizations of certain virtues and powers of mind. Falkland is like Jean Valjean, a superhuman creature, and indeed Caleb Williams may well be compared on one side with Les Miserables, for Victor Hugo's avowed purpose, likewise, was the denunciation of social tyranny. But the characteristics that would have weakened the implied theorem, had such been the main object, are the very things that make the novel more powerful as drama of a grandiose spiritual kind. The high and concentrated imagination that created such a being as Falkland— and the intensity of passion with which Caleb's fatal energy of mind is sustained through that long despairing struggle, are of greater artistic value than the mechanical symmetry by which morals are illustrated. E. A. B. Preface by the Author The following narrative is intended to answer a purpose more general and important than immediately appears upon the face of it. The question now afloat in the world respecting, things as they are, is the most interesting that can be presented to the human mind. While one party pleads for reformation and change, the other extols in the warmest terms the existing constitution of society. IT SEEMED AS IF SOMETHING WOULD BE GAINED FOR THE DECISION OF THIS QUESTION IF THAT CONSTITUTION WERE FAITHFULLY DEVELOPED IN ITS PRACTICAL EFFECTS. WHAT IS NOW PRESENTED TO THE PUBLIC IS NO REFINED AND ABSTRACT SPECULATION. IT IS A STUDY AND DELINEATION OF THINGS PASSING IN THE MORAL WORLD. IT IS BUT OF LATE THAT THE INESTIMABLE IMPORTANCE OF POLITICAL PRINCIPLES HAS BEEN ADEQUATELY APPREHENDED. It is now known to philosophers that the spirit and character of the government intrudes itself into every rank of society. But this is a truth highly worthy to be communicated to persons whom books of philosophy and science are never likely to reach. Accordingly, it was proposed, in the invention of the following work, to comprehend, as far as the progressive nature of a single story would allow, a general review of the modes of domestic and unrecorded despotism by which man becomes the destroyer of man. If the author shall have taught a valuable lesson, without subtracting from the interest and passion by which a performance of this sort ought to be characterized, he will have reason to congratulate himself upon the vehicle he has chosen. May twelfth, seventeen 1794. This preface was withdrawn in the original edition, in compliance with the alarms of booksellers. Caleb Williams made his first appearance in the world in the same month in which the sanguinary plot broke out against the liberties of Englishmen, which was happily terminated by the acquittal of its first intended victims in the close of that year. Terror was the order of the day, And it was feared that even the humble novelist might be shown to be constructively a traitor. October twenty ninth, seventeen ninety five. Author's latest preface, London, november twentieth, eighteen thirty two. Caleb Williams has always been regarded by the public with an unusual degree of favour. The proprietor of the standard novels has therefore imagined that even an account of the concoction and mode of writing of the work would be viewed with some interest. I finished the Enquiry Concerning Political Justice, the first work which may be considered as written by me in a certain degree in the maturity of my intellectual powers, and bearing my name, early in January 1793 and about the middle of the following month the book was published. It was my fortune at that time to be obliged to consider my pen as the sole instrument for supplying my current expenses. By the liberality of my bookseller, Mr. George Robinson, of Paternoster Row, I was enabled then, and for nearly ten years before, to meet these expenses, while writing different things of obscure note, the names of which, though innocent and in some degree useful, I am rather inclined to suppress. In May 1791 I projected this, my favourite work, and from that time gave up every other occupation that might interfere with it. My agreement with Robinson was that he was to supply my wants, at a specified rate, while the book was in the train of composition. Finally, I was very little beforehand with the world on the day of its publication and was therefore obliged to look round and consider to what species of industry I should next devote myself. I had always felt in myself some vocation towards the composition of a narrative of fictitious adventure, and among the things of obscure note which I have above referred to were two or three pieces of this nature. It is not therefore extraordinary that some project of the sort should have suggested itself on the present occasion. BUT I STOOD NOW IN A VERY DIFFERENT SITUATION FROM THAT IN WHICH I HAD BEEN PLACED AT A FORMER PERIOD. IN PAST YEARS, AND EVEN ALMOST FROM BOYHOOD, I WAS PERPETUALLY PRONE TO EXCLAIM WITH Cowley, WHAT SHALL I DO TO BE FOREVER KNOWN, AND MAKE THE AGE TO COME MY OWN? BUT I HAD ENDEAVORED FOR TEN YEARS, AND WAS AS FAR FROM APPROACHING MY OBJECT AS EVER. EVERYTHING I WROTE FELL, DEAD BORN FROM THE PRESS very often I was disposed to quit the enterprise in despair. But still I felt ever and anon impelled to repeat my effort. At length I conceived the plan of political justice. I was convinced that my object of building to myself a name would never be attained by merely repeating and refining a little upon what other men had said, even though I should imagine that I delivered things of this sort with a more than usual point and elegance. THE WORLD, I BELIEVED, WOULD ACCEPT NOTHING FROM ME WITH DISTINGUISHING FAVOUR THAT DID NOT BEAR UPON THE FACE OF IT THE UNDOUBTED STAMP OF ORIGINALITY. HAVING LONG RUMINATED UPON THE PRINCIPLES OF POLITICAL JUSTICE, I PERSUADED MYSELF THAT I COULD OFFER TO THE PUBLIC, IN A TREATISE ON THIS SUBJECT, THINGS AT ONCE NEW, TRUE, AND IMPORTANT. IN THE PROGRESS OF THE WORK I BECAME MORE SANGUINE AND CONFIDENT. I talked over my ideas with a few familiar friends during its progress, and they gave me every generous encouragement. It happened that the fame of my book, in some inconsiderable degree, got before its publication, and a certain number of persons were prepared to receive it with favour. It would be false modesty in me to say that its acceptance, when published, did not nearly come up to everything that could soberly have been expected by me. In consequence of this, the tone of my mind, both during the period in which I was engaged in the work, and afterwards, acquired a certain elevation, and made me now unwilling to stoop to what was insignificant. I formed a conception of a book of fictitious adventure that should in some way be distinguished by a very powerful interest. Pursuing this idea, I invented first the third volume of my tale, then the second, and last of all the first. I bent myself to the conception of a series of adventures of flight and pursuit, the fugitive in perpetual apprehension of being overwhelmed with the worst calamities, and the pursuer, by his ingenuity and resources, keeping his victim in a state of the most fearful alarm. This was the project of my third volume, I was next called upon to conceive a dramatic and impressive situation adequate to account for the impulse that the pursuer should feel, incessantly to alarm and harass his victim, with an inextinguishable resolution never to allow him the least interval of peace and security. This I apprehended could best be effected by a secret murder, to the investigation of which the innocent victim should be impelled by an unconquerable spirit of curiosity. The murderer would thus have a sufficient motive to persecute the unhappy discoverer, that he might deprive him of peace, character and credit, and have him for ever in his power. This constituted the outline of my second volume. The subject of the first volume was still to be invented. To account for the fearful events of the third, it was necessary that the pursuer should be invested with every advantage of fortune with a resolution that nothing could defeat or baffle, and with extraordinary resources of intellect. Nor could my purpose of giving an overpowering interest to my tale be answered without his appearing to have been originally endowed with a mighty store of amiable dispositions and virtues, so that his being driven to the first act of murder should be judged worthy of the deepest regret, and should be seen in some measure to have arisen out of his virtues themselves. It was necessary to make him, so to speak, the tenant of an atmosphere of romance, so that every reader should feel prompted almost to worship him for his high qualities. Here were ample materials for a first volume. I felt that I had a great advantage in thus carrying back my invention from the ultimate conclusion to the first commencement of the train of adventures upon which I purposed to employ my pen an entire unity of plot would be the infallible result, and the unity of spirit and interest in a tale truly considered gives it a powerful hold on the reader, which can scarcely be generated with equal success in any other way. I devoted about two or three weeks to the imagining and putting down hints for my story, before I engaged seriously and methodically in its composition. In these hints I began with my third volume, then proceeded to my second, and last of all grappled with the first. I filled two or three sheets of demi-writing paper, folded in octavo, with these memorandums. They were put down with great brevity, yet explicitly enough to secure a perfect recollection of their meaning, within the time necessary for drawing out the story at full, in short paragraphs of two, three, four, five, or six lines each. I then sat down to write my story from the beginning. I wrote for the most part but a short portion in any single day. I wrote only when the afflatus was upon me. I held it for a maxim that any portion that was written when I was not fully in the vein told for considerably worse than nothing. Idleness was a thousand times better in this case than industry against the grain. Idleness was only time lost, and the next day, it may be, was as promising as ever. It was merely a day perished from the calendar. But a passage written feebly, flatly, and in a wrong spirit, constituted an obstacle that it was next to impossible to correct and set right again. I wrote, therefore, by starts— sometimes for a week or ten days not a line, yet all came to the same thing in the sequel. On an average, a volume of Caleb Williams cost me four months, neither less nor more. It must be admitted, however, that during the whole period, baiting a few intervals, my mind was in a high state of excitement. I said to myself a thousand times, "'I will write a tale that shall constitute an epoch in the mind of the reader.' that no one, after he has read it, shall ever be exactly the same man that he was before. I put these things down just as they happened, and with the most entire frankness. I know that it will sound like the most pitiable degree of self-conceit. But such, perhaps, ought to be the state of mind of an author when he does his best. At any rate, I have said nothing of my vainglorious impulse for nearly forty years." When I had written about seven-tenths of the first volume I was prevailed upon by the extreme importunity of an old and intimate friend to allow him the perusal of my manuscript. On the second day he returned it with a note to this purpose. I return you your manuscript because I promised to do so. If I had obeyed the impulse of my own mind I should have thrust it in the fire, If you persist, the book will infallibly prove the grave of your literary fame. I doubtless felt no implicit deference for the judgment of my friendly critic. Yet it cost me at least two days of deep anxiety before I recovered the shock. Let the reader picture to himself my situation. I felt no implicit deference for the judgment of my friendly critic. But it was all I had for it. This was my first experiment of an unbiased decision. It stood in the place of all the world to me. I could not, and I did not feel disposed to, appeal any further. If I had, how could I tell that the second and third judgment would be more favourable than the first? Then what would have been the result? No, I had nothing for it but to wrap myself in my own integrity— by dint of resolution, I became invulnerable. I resolved to go on to the end, trusting as I could to my own anticipations of the whole, and bidding the world wait its time before it should be admitted to the consult. I began my narrative, as is the more usual way, in the third person, but I speedily became dissatisfied. I then assumed the first person, making the hero of my tale his own historian and in this mode I have persisted in all my subsequent attempts at works of fiction. It was infinitely the best adapted, at least to my vein of delineation, where the thing in which my imagination reveled the most freely was the analysis of the private and internal operations of the mind, employing my metaphysical dissecting-knife in tracing and laying bare the involutions of motive— and recording the gradually accumulating impulses, which led the personages I had to describe primarily to adopt the particular way of proceeding in which they afterwards embarked. When I had determined on the main purpose of my story, it was ever my method to get about me any productions of former authors that seemed to bear on my subject. I never entertained the fear, that in this way of proceeding I should be in danger of servilely copying my predecessors. I imagined that I had a vein of thinking that was properly my own, which would always preserve me from plagiarism. I read other authors that I might see what they had done, or, more properly, that I might forcibly hold my mind and occupy my thoughts in a particular train, I and my predecessors travelling in some sense to the same goal at the same time that I struck out a path of my own, without ultimately heeding the direction they pursued, and disdaining to inquire whether by any chance it for a few steps coincided, or did not coincide, with mine. Thus, in the instance of Caleb Williams, I read over a little old book entitled The Adventures of Mademoiselle de Saint-Fal, a French Protestant, in the times of the fiercest persecution of the Huguenots, who fled through France in the utmost terror in the midst of eternal alarms and hairbreadth escapes, having her quarters perpetually beaten up, and by scarcely any chance finding a moment's interval of security, I turned over the pages of a tremendous compilation entitled "God's Revenge Against Murder," where the beam of the eye of omniscience was represented as perpetually pursuing the guilty, and laying open his most hidden retreats to the light of day. I was extremely conversant with the Newgate calendar, and the Lives of the Pirates. In the meantime no works of fiction came amiss to me, provided they were written with energy. The authors were still employed upon the same mine as myself, however different was the vein they pursued we were all of us engaged in exploring the entrails of mind and motive, and in tracing the various rencontres and clashes that may occur between man and man in the diversified scene of human life. I rather amused myself with tracing a certain similitude between the story of Caleb Williams and the tale of Bluebeard than derived any hints from that admirable specimen of the terrific. Falkland was my Bluebeard who had perpetrated atrocious crimes which, if discovered, he might expect to have all the world roused to revenge against him. Caleb Williams was the wife who, in spite of warning, persisted in his attempts to discover the forbidden secret, and when he had succeeded, struggled as fruitlessly to escape the consequences as the wife of Bluebeard in washing the key of the ensanguined chamber who, as often as she cleared the stain of blood from the one side, found it showing itself with frightful distinctness on the other. When I had proceeded as far as the early pages of my third volume, I found myself completely at a stand. I rested on my arms from the 2nd of January, 1794, to the 1st of April following, without getting forward in the smallest degree. It has ever been thus with me in works of any continuance. The bow will not be for ever bent. O per in longo, fas est obra per somnum. I endeavoured, however, to take my repose to myself in security, and not to inflict a set of crude and incoherent dreams upon my readers. In the meantime, when I revived, I revived in earnest and in the course of that month carried on my work with unabated speed to the end. Thus I have endeavoured to give a true history of the concoction and mode of writing of this mighty trifle. When I had done, I soon became sensible that I had done in a manner nothing. How many flat and insipid parts does the book contain? How terribly unequal does it appear to me, From time to time the author plainly reels to and fro like a drunken man. And when I had done all, what had I done? Written a book to amuse boys and girls in their vacant hours. A story to be hastily gobbled up by them, swallowed in a pusillanimous and unanimated mood, without chewing and digestion. I was in this respect greatly impressed with the confession of one of the most accomplished readers and excellent critics that any author could have fallen in with—the unfortunate Joseph Gerald. He told me that he had received my book late one evening, and had read through the three volumes before he closed his eyes. Thus, what had cost me twelve months' labour, ceaseless heartaches and industry, now sinking in despair, and now roused and sustained in unusual energy, he went over in a few hours, shut the book, laid himself on his pillow, slept, and was refreshed, and cried, "'Tomorrow to fresh woods and pastures new.'" I had thought to have said something here respecting the concoction of St. Leon and Fleetwood. BUT ALL THAT OCCURS TO ME ON THE SUBJECT SEEMS TO BE ANTICIPATED IN THE FOLLOWING PREFACE TO THE FIRST EDITION. FEBRUARY Fourteenth, eighteen 1805. YET ANOTHER NOVEL FROM THE SAME PEN WHICH HAS TWICE BEFORE CLAIMED THE PATIENCE OF THE PUBLIC IN THIS FORM. THE UNEQUIVOCAL INDULGENCE WHICH HAS BEEN EXTENDED TO MY TWO FORMER ATTEMPTS RENDERS ME DOUBLY SOLICITOUS NOT TO FORFEIT THE KINDNESS I HAVE EXPERIENCED. One caution I have particularly sought to exercise, not to repeat myself. Caleb Williams was a story of very surprising and uncommon events, but which were supposed to be entirely within the laws and established course of nature, as she operates in the planet we inhabit. The story of Saint Leon is of the miraculous class and its design, to mix human feelings and passions with incredible situations, and thus render them impressive and interesting. Some of those fastidious readers—they may be classed among the best friends an author has, if their admonitions are judiciously considered—who are willing to discover those faults which do not offer themselves to every eye, have remarked that both these tales are in a vicious style of writing that Horace has long ago decided that the story we cannot believe we are by all the laws of criticism called upon to hate, and that even the adventures of the honest secretary, who was first heard of ten years ago, are so much out of the usual road that not one reader in a million can ever fear they will happen to himself. Gentlemen critics, I thank you. In the present volumes I have served you with a dish agreeable to your own receipt, though I cannot say with any sanguine hope of obtaining your approbation. The following story consists of such adventures as for the most part have occurred to at least one half of the Englishmen now existing, who are of the same rank of life as my hero. Most of them have been at college and shared in college excesses, Most of them have afterward run a certain gauntlet of dissipation. Most have married, and, I am afraid, there are few of the married tribe who have not, at some time or other, had certain small misunderstandings with their wives. To be sure, they have not all of them felt and acted under these trite adventures, as my hero does. In this little work the reader will scarcely find anything to elevate and surprise— and if it has any merit, it must consist in the liveliness, with which it brings things home to the imagination, and the reality it gives to the scenes it portrays. Footnote. I confess, however, the inability I found to weave a catastrophe such as I desired out of these ordinary incidents. What I have here said, therefore, must not be interpreted as applicable to the concluding sheets of my work. End footnote. Yes, even in the present narrative I have aimed at a certain kind of novelty—a novelty which may be aptly expressed by a parody on a well-known line of Pope, it relates—things often done but never yet described. In selecting among common and ordinary adventures, I have endeavoured to avoid such as a thousand novels before mine have undertaken to develop. Multitudes of readers have themselves passed through the very incidents I relate, but, for the most part, no work has hitherto recorded them. If I have hold them truly, I have added somewhat to the stock of books which should enable a recluse, shut up in his closet, to form an idea of what is passing in the world. It is inconceivable, meanwhile, how much by this choice of a subject I increased the arduousness of my task. It is so easy to do, a little better, or a little worse, what twenty authors have done before. If I had foreseen from the first all the difficulty of my project, my courage would have failed me to undertake the execution of it. Certain persons who condescend to make my supposed inconsistencies the favourite object of their research will perhaps remark with exultation on the respect expressed in this work for marriage, and exclaim, "'It was not always thus,' referring to the pages in which this subject is treated in the inquiry concerning political justice, for the proof of their assertion. The answer to this remark is exceedingly simple. The production referred to in it, the first foundation of its author's claim to public distinction and favour, was a treatise, aiming to ascertain what new institutions in political society might be found more conducive to general happiness than those which at present prevail. In the course of this disquisition it was inquired whether marriage, as it stands described and supported in the laws of England, might not with advantage admit of certain modifications can anything be more distinct than such a proposition on the one hand, and a recommendation on the other, that each man for himself should supersede and trample upon the institutions of the country in which he lives? A thousand things might be found excellent and salutary, if brought into general practice, which would in some cases appear ridiculous, and in others be attended with tragical consequences if prematurely acted upon by a solitary individual. The author of Political Justice, as appears again and again in the pages of that work, is the last man in the world to recommend a pitiful attempt, by scattered examples, to renovate the face of society, instead of endeavouring, by discussion and reasoning, to effect a grand and comprehensive improvement in the sentiments of its members. End of Introduction and Prefaces